WBNE. Hello and welcome to episode 147, all about the Silmarillion, chapter 8 of The Darkening of Valinor, being the 147th part of That's What I'm Tolkien About. My name is Mary Clay. If that's too complicated for you, just call me MC. I've been experiencing the world of J.R.R. Tolkien for the first time, and right now I am reading The Silmarillion, so you don't have to. Today I'm joined by Dr. Sarah Brown. Welcome! Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming on. I'm continuing um, my rabbit hole of like Tolkien Twitter people of just going down uh, the list of my followers to see who have I followed? Who do I see on my timeline? And, uh, and your name popped up and I was like, perfect. I've been waiting for, uh, for the Silmarillion to start reaching out to all the scholarly people. So... <laughs> This, that's where I need the most help. So thank you for no joining pressure, us. No pressure. <laughs> you already know more than I do. So you, by default, you are the expert here. There's no other pressure. Expert in the room, maybe. Yes. Uh, I'm with that. <laughs> um, well, why don't you tell me and the listeners how you got introduced to Tolkien and Lord of the Rings, or maybe it was through The Hobbit. How did that happen? Oh, now I'm going to have to go back a long time here because uh, I was eight years old when my dad pulled a copy of The Lord of the Rings, not The Hobbit, The Lord mm-hmm. of the Rings off his shelves. I think he just wanted me to have something that would keep me quiet for a little while. But- <laughs> I was such a voracious reader as a child, and um, he thought that The Lord of the Rings might uh, might satisfy me for a few days, you know, and it did. So I read The Lord of the Rings before I read The Hobbit, because um, uh, he didn't have a copy of The Hobbit. I don't know why he didn't have a copy of The Hobbit, but I devoured And you his- were eight years old? I was eight. That's impressive. I was 20. How old was I when I started this podcast now? I was 24, 25 when I was reading Lord of the Rings. And that was difficult. So for an eight year old. (laughs) Oh, hey, I think people come to Tolkien whenever they're ready. And Mm -hmm. that's what of Tolkien's work, right? That, you know, when you're ready, the work is there for you. Um, And I wouldn't say at eight, I was 100% ready because you know, obviously at eight years old, you read it on a certain level and you, you get the story, but you're not going to get all of the many layers. Sure, yeah. Shrek-like, Tolkien is like an onion. Uh, <laughs> it's one of the, again, another of the beauties of his work is that you can keep on unpeeling layers. So every time I reread The Lord of the Rings, it gives me something new. So yeah, I have been reading it since I was eight years old. And I then, after I finished that, I got a copy of The Hobbit and was kind of confused because I didn't realize that The Hobbit was actually before The Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. And so I was super confused for most of that until I kind of worked it out in my head that I'd read them in the wrong order, but never mind. But I was only about 12 when I first grabbed The Silmarillion. Um, And again, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I understood everything in The Silmarillion at the age of 12, because that would be nonsense. 
Um, I mean, again, at the age of 27, I do definitely do not understand everything in the in the Silmarillion. <laughs> I think the only reason why I even enjoyed the Silmarillion at all at age 12 is because I was in a mythology kind of stage of my reading and I was reading everything mythology I was you know I read the Greek mythology and the Roman mythology and uh, and I read some Icelandic mythology Nordic mythology and then I got handed the Silmarillion and I read it as mythology and because of that it kind of made sense to me but again I am not claiming to have understood everything about the Silmarillion at the age of 12 I wish I'm not that much of a genius um and again, I'm every time I come back to the Silmarillion, I see new things that I haven't noticed before. And I think that's because whatever stage you're at, you bring something of yourself to the text, like you do to any really mm. good text. And so wherever you're at in your life, those are the sorts of things that you pick out of the text at the time. Um, and then you can find something new on a different reading when you're in a different moment of your life. But to go back to your original question, which I think was half a million years ago now, um, I first was introduced to Tolkien's work at the age of eight, and I kind of haven't put it down since, which I think gives me nerd medals. Yeah, though, no, definitely. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what you are doing with Tolkien now. Right. Well, um, <laughs> I actually decided quite some time ago now to do my PhD on Tolkien. And I worked for many years on that because I was working full time as a teacher uh, and young family and, you know, all the other things that go along with life at, in your late 30s, early 40s. Um, and I finally finished that in 2013. So a latecomer to PhDs, but, you know, that's perfectly normal these days and no bad thing at all. Um but in 2012, I was approached by Corey Olson, the, to uh, the Tolkien professor, mm -hmm. and, and he asked if I would like to come and teach for him at his new university, Signum University, or um, Mythgard, as it was called back then, in fact. Um, and he wanted to be offering classes on Tolkien to people who were interested and Signum University has grown exponentially since then. And um, I'm now chair of faculty for literature and language at Signum. And that is now my main job. And we offer many different courses on different aspects of Tolkien's work, uh, as well as lots of other courses on various fantasy fiction, science fiction. And that's just the literature side, because in the language side, which picked up from Tolkien, um, we also were doing we're, we're doing things like um, Germanic languages and Old Norse and Old Saxon, Old English, all the sorts of things that Tolkien would have absolutely adored. So I'm working in amongst people who are my people at Signum. So that's one of the things I'm doing right now. So that's great. The other thing is, and if there was a good thing that came out of the pandemic. One of the good things is that conferences are now, so many of them are at least hybrid, if not Zoom only. And that means I've been able to attend large numbers of academic conferences in the last few years that I would never have been able to get to. So I've been writing more conference papers and interacting more with academics, and that's been really good for me. Um, 
So at the moment, I'm finishing up some work that I'm hoping will be published in a new book on Tolkien in the next year or so. I'm working on polishing up some academic papers for publication in some academic journals. I'm writing more academic papers for more conferences. And who needs sleep, right? That's for the Wow. <laughs> That's definitely a lot. Well, thank you for, for making the time to sit down with little old me and talk oh. about... <laughs> this this crazy book so <laughs> we, yeah, i appreciate that no 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 i mean this is this is fun this is the good thing because i love talking to anybody about tolkien and it does not matter whether you are someone who's never read tolkien before but you're kind of interested in hearing about it someone who's read him but you've not delved too deeply into it somebody who is interested in going further or somebody who's actually working in the academic side it doesn't matter. We're one big family of people who all love these works. And I think that's absolutely fantastic. We're all of the same people. That's a really, yeah, that's a really great way of viewing it. And um, I love that you were able to, out of the pandemic, at least find some, you know, positivity to come out of that, that you're able to connect with more people and talk to more people that you maybe wouldn't have been able to. And that's what I enjoy a lot about the podcast is that I get to talk to a whole variety of, of Tolkien people and see people on the spectrum who are beginners and who were diving into things along with me or had just about as much knowledge as I did. And then people like Corey Olson, the, the Tolkien professor, came on for an episode of The Hobbit. So, um, yeah, it's really great to see all of these wonderful people. People in this community. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, we get the same thing on our Tolkien Experience podcast um, that I do with Sarah Westwick and Luke Shelton. Um, Luke Shelton, of course, who started up the Tolkien Experience podcast a couple of years ago. Yes. And Luke has also been on this podcast as well. Shout out, Luke. <laughs> Absolutely. Shout out, Luke. And, and, and do get Sarah on as well, because they are really interesting and have some wonderful new perspectives on Tolkien. So heartily recommend. Um, but one of the beauties of doing the Tolkien Experience podcast is just the same as, as what you're saying. We talk to people who come to Tolkien from loads of different perspectives. And I think that's absolutely wonderful. Yeah, it's great. So let's dive in now to the chapter at hand. This is chapter eight of The Darkening of Valinor. Um, spoiler alert, some sad things happen here, shall we say, just from the title alone. It starts off with, they're not really sure where Melkor is. Um, he, a reminder for, for everyone, he got out of prison. He said, I swear I'm like, I'm good now. I promise. And Manway was like, oh, okay, <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, and then he spent his years kind of building his cover as a good person, becoming close with the Noldor. And then when Feanor classic Feanor, um, started showing some of his true self and his stubbornness and um, bold personality, shall we say. Melkor saw his opportunity and started spreading chaos amongst the Noldor. And then once he was discovered, he fled. And so that's where we are now. He's still fleeing the land, essentially. And Manwe and Orome and Tolkas 
are trying to figure out where he is and they think they have some leads, but he's actually gone south to the dark region of Avathar. Is that correct? The Mm -hmm. pronunciation? Okay, great. I'm probably going to check in with you a lot about (laughs) pronunciations. (laughs) I'll try Um, and get it right too. So he goes to the southern region um, where it is so dark and so, I guess, ripe for evil to grow Mm -hmm. that this little being named Ungoliant (laughs) has grown and has made this her home. So... I am a big fan of Shelob, um, which is really like it's a funny thing to like take a stance on, but like I, it, my like I guess I don't know dry humor and dark humor and like all right girl boss action. Uh, she comes into the picture in, in Two Towers and she's like her own thing. Sauron doesn't command her. And I'm like, you know what? Good for her. So being a big fan of Shelob, I had heard a lot about, um, I had heard people reference Ungoliant. And I was like, I don't know who that is. The whole gimmick of this show is that I am doing all this for the first time. So I don't know who that is. And now here she is, loud and clear, Ungoliant. She, um, it's not clear to the Eldar where exactly she came from. They guess that she was one of the ones from the kingdom of Manwe that uh, Melkor drew out and corrupted to his own purposes. But she had disowned her master, desiring to be mistress of her own lust, taking all things to herself to feed her emptiness. Wonderful, so cool. <laughs> Do we know anything besides like what the Eldar guess about her origin? Very, very little. Um, in the Silmarillion itself, her origins are sh- as shrouded in darkness as she is. Um, there are numbers of guesses about who she was, who she, you know, where she came from, this sort of thing. But I think part of the mystery of Ungoliant is her. Uh, her shadowed background, um, that there is just this evil presence that lives in the darkness that um, feeds off light and therefore creates more darkness, but we don't know where it came from. Uh, And this, I think, is, is so fascinating because... Of course, it's only a few chapters ago that we had the Ainu Lindale and you have Iluvatar creating Arda with the help of all the Valar. And then it's Melkor who comes in saying, no, I'm going to sing my own song. And there's no sense there of something like Ungoliant being created in that moment. So a thought may be, and I've had this thought, that perhaps Ungoliant comes out of the disharmony that Melkor sings in the Iron Lindale. Oh, because yeah. Evil's got to come from somewhere. We know that evil is in Arda. And at this point, Melkor kind of personifies that presence of evil. And yet he's, he's definitely not the only presence of evil. And if he is singing this disharmony, this discordance um, during the making of, Marda, uh, of Arda, it's going to mar Arda in its making. Uh, And so one of my thoughts is maybe um, something like Ungoliant is a result of this discordance. It's just my thought. It's just a fun thought that is a possibility. 
Um, there's nothing in Tolkien's own writings that, that says anything like that, but uh, it's just my idea. No, I think that's a great, I think that makes a lot of sense. And that, that like, that's a really great theory. And that's what I, like, one of my gripes with Tolkien is that he leaves so many things. Um, it's like, what, what am I saying? He goes into detail about everything there is to go into detail, which means that there's not as much room for fun theorizing about how, like, how this came to be or, oh, I wonder what happens to these people in the future. And you don't have to wonder any of that because Tolkien has written it somewhere. So <laughs> I like, like with Ungoliant, I appreciate the parts in this story that leave a little bit of mystery where we're not sure where we can theorize. And that's also why I love Tom Bombadil so much. Like mm -hmm. there's just so much to wonder and theorize and imagine there that um, you can't do with most of the other story because Tolkien's already written it all out. Right. I guess the other one, the other big one is the Entwives. Where yes. the Entwives gone? What happened to the Entwives? I mean, that's an, another wonderful question that uh, Tolkien doesn't give us an answer to. Um, and yeah, like you, I love those gaps. Yes. Oh my gosh. Where are the Entwives, man? I've been screaming <laughs> that for like, how long have I been doing the podcast now? Two years. Oh my gosh, three years. Um, so yes, Ungoliant mm. lives in this shroud of darkness in this area of the land. Um, that it mentions that the Valar have not ever really been to. They haven't inhabited or explored or uh, like left their mark on it in any capacity. And so I'm kind of like, well, of course that's where I was kind of laughing because they're like, I wonder where Melkor is. And it's like, <laughs> Have you tried looking like outside your immediate neighborhood? <laughs> Maybe <laughs> he's there. Yeah, he's in the last place you haven't checked, right? Yeah. <laughs> like looking for your keys and your wallet and your, your watch. Yeah, it's in the last place you haven't checked. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's a bit of a woo over here in the dark bit down here yeah. that you haven't looked in yet. I'm, I'm over here. It's a little bit like that. Yeah. So Melkor goes and knocks on the door of Ungoliant and is like, hey, we should team up. I have some fun things in mind. Um, but remember, Ungoliant is, she's the original girl boss. She <laughs> is doing her own thing. And also, to her credit, she is, um, like, she she's very intelligent and she knows what she's up against with the Valar. And she's like, I don't know. They're pretty powerful. And if we don't get this right, then it's going to end badly for us. And Melkor's like, listen, I got it covered. You will have everything you want to eat. Because remember, she eats everything in sight. I get that. Same. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was one of my like weird, I guess, I don't know, side effects while I had COVID is that I never really had a big appetite like around dinner time. It wasn't like, OK, I'm starving and I need to sit down and eat dinner. I just snacked all day long, <laughs> just lots of snacks, just lots of random eating. And it's also the week after Easter. So I just have tons of like Easter candy. So nothing <laughs> healthy went into my body. You're doing um, a session. Yes, 100 percent. She's like, OK, I guess let's give this a try. She weaves 
a cloak of darkness, but it's not just darkness. It is unlight with a capital U. Mm -hmm. Um, It says, in which things seem to be no more and which eyes could not pierce for it was void. And this reminds me, there's a shade, a like very expensive specific shade of the color black that is like the darkest dark black ever. Like, and I believe also this goes into some really funny backstory with the inventor of this color and he has a beef against the guy who created the Chicago bean statue and so there are all these people who troll the guy who created this dark dark black by making these funny Facebook events about oh no no I think he was he was also the guy I don't know I'm totally messing up all of this really funny story about the color black and the Chicago bean But anyway, suffice to say, when it said unlight, that's what I thought about is that there's this really cool like scientific color that science uh, scientists are like, yeah, this is what like a black hole in space would be like. (laughs) Yeah, the idea that um, it's not just no light, but it almost devours light because light gets sucked into it and disappears. That's how lacking in light it is. Uh, and I think it's the descriptions of Ungoliant here are absolutely wonderful. I love the fact that uh, Tolkien comes back to the word void when it comes to her, because really the last time we saw that word void again is back in the Ainu Lindale, when Iluvatar first brings the Valar to sing um, Arda into being. Uh, and it says that it's no longer void because it has been filled with this presence of Arda, if you like. Here with Ungoliant, there's such a lack of anything kind of filled with life, if you like. I'm not saying she's dead. She's not dead. She's not vampire spider. Um, But it sucks life in, sucks light in, so that everything kind of disappears, very black hole-like, if you like. Um, And I think that's absolutely wonderful. So that when she weaves these nets of darkness, that they don't only like turn out the light, they actually pull the light in and consume it and it's gone. So that is, is, it's different to where you think of, or light is over here and dark is over here or night and day kind of opposites. It's only like that if day could actually be sort of sucked into night and night consumes day and then day doesn't exist anymore. And that's kind of what he's going with with Ungoliant. And the other thing I love about the description here is that it parallels so closely with his description of Shelob when we get to the Mm -hmm. Shelob's lair in the Two Towers, Um, because pretty much everything he says about Ungoliant, you can see the... um, the reflection of that in Shelob, uh, for example, Shelob, he says her vomit is darkness. darkness. Right. So everything about Shelob is also dark and black and uh, void of life. And it also talks about her all-consuming hunger, same as with Ungoliant. And both of them supposedly have a master, as in Ungoliant is supposed to um, be under the sway of Melkor, and Melkor kind of thinks she is, and Shelob is supposed to be um, kind of almost like a, a guard for Sauron, if you like, at Kirith Ungol. But she doesn't acknowledge him as her master. Neither of these 
powerful female characters truly acknowledge these male overlords. They're there because they want to be there and because it suits them to be there. And because if they're there, they get what they want. And only as long as that is happening, are they okay with being there or doing anything for these so-called overlords that these overlords seem to expect them to do. And I love that. Absolutely love that. Yes, 100% to everything you said. And it's just, this is what like, I'll use to kind of, I'll use Shelob and now Ungoliant to kind of poke fun at Tolkien for his, even though the female characters he's writing in the Silmarillion are cool, it's definitely lacking in female characters. And so I will poke fun and be like, um, to some like bigots, you know, on the internet in my comments and stuff. And I'll be like, um, I mean, I think it's pretty telling when your most powerful female character is like a giant spider of darkness, <laughs> like not really even a human character, but like, so, so I wish we had, I wish we had that in like a female form, but it just makes me laugh so much that like, <laughs> That like our most powerful female characters who don't listen to the men who do everything by themselves are just spiders of darkness. <laughs> You're right that Tolkien doesn't have many female characters. But I think one of the things we have to notice about his female characters is when he does have them, they are powerful. Oh, yeah, I love them. Don't They're get me wrong. really powerful characters. I mean, even just looking at the Silmarillion, look at Melian and the power that she wields. Mm-hmm. Um, and look at Luthien, because Beren would not have got far without his Luthien. Let's put it this way. If it hadn't been for Luthien, um, there's no way they would have got as far as they had. Um, you've got all manner of uh, powerful Valar who are female, uh, and I love mm. the fact that if he does have a female character, they are pretty strong. If you go through to the Lord of the Rings, I mean, even uh, Lobelia Sackville Baggins is a re- she's a strong character. She really. Uh. I mean, yes, okay, she has a habit of sticking Bilbo's spoons in her umbrella, but look at the way in which she is the one who stands up to the men in the scouring of the Shire. Mm-hmm. She stands up to them. She tries to fight them off herself and gets carted off to prison for it. If that is not one strong hobbit, I don't know what is. She gets my respect, I'll tell you. Yes. Oh, yeah, I... I love them all. Don't, yeah, don't get me wrong. Love that Lobelia. I love the drama that she brings, the, like, very human aspect of, like, just gossip and, like, family issues. (laughs) Yeah. It's so fun. And, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I want to go back and read a few descriptions of Ungoliant just because I I meant to do that earlier and kind of forgot. And so since we're, we're talking about, like, how she's described and we love her so much. It says, she hungered for light and hated it. In a ravine, she lived and took shape as a spider of monstrous form, weaving her black webs in a cleft of the mountains. There she sucked up all light that she could find and spun it forth again in dark nets of strangling doom until no light could come to her abode. And she was famished. Love Mm -hmm. that. And then as it's describing this 
this unlight, this cloak of darkness that they are in, and they're moving north. It says, Then slowly she wrought her webs, rope by rope, from cleft to cleft, from jutting rock to pinnacle of stone, ever climbing upwards, crawling and clinging, until at last she reached the very summit of word I don't know how to pronounce, Hyar Mentir. The highest mountain in that region of the world, far south of Great Taniquitil. Mm-hmm. So, um, love all the, the 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 description. It's so amazing how, like, obviously we know she's a spider, but like Tolkien putting in that, like, she's weaving these webs, rope to rope, cleft to cleft. Just amazing descriptive language from Tolkien, as always. No, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in here. Yes, you say we know she's a spider. Do we? Do we really? I thought it just said. Oh, look back at the top of that paragraph. In a ravine, she lived and took shape. Shape as a, yes. Of monstrous form. If you look at the chapter about Shelob, again, it doesn't say she's a spider. It says she's an evil thing of spider form. And I really find that interesting because, yes, we're meant to look on them as spider-like because... Um, you know, th- this is kind of a, a thing. A lot of humans have a kind of shuddering when it comes to looking at spiders. Some people love them. Most people are not that keen on them. Um, and we know that Tolkien didn't like spiders either. But neither Ungoliant nor Shelob are explicitly described as actually being spiders. They have spider form, which they have chosen to take. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, that's so cool that they could, they're like, I guess, you know, I mean, they're, they're similar mm-hmm. to the Valar in some ways, because that that's how Mel- Melkor is able to evade um, Manwe and everyone else is that he is a Valar. And so he can, you know, shapeshift, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't have to be in human form. He can be in like spirit form, just kind of floating around. And um, and so they're similar in that way, I guess, but just the dark evil version of that where they can, mm-hmm. yeah, take whatever form they want. And yeah, the fact that they choose to, to be a, a giant spider is very telling. <laughs> it is, yes. It tells you a lot about um, uh, what they want to present themselves as and what is going to be um, you know, a, a great form for them to take, for them to be able to do what they want to do and be how they want to be. Uh, and that spider shape is chosen. And because it's chosen, you have to kind of think that um, – they could have chosen other forms, but this is the one, and therefore there must be a reason for that. Apart from the fact that it makes us all go, Ugh. yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, everyone is having a party, of course, as Manway does. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I find interesting, so they're having a party. Essentially, they they have all these feasts um, at what would be like in our human world. It would be like the first harvest of spring and, you know, fruits and vegetables and the world is anew again and it's beautiful. But of course, in Valinor, everything is so perfect that like there's no such thing as like 
a dead winter where like the world is cold and things aren't growing. Mm -hmm. So they kind of have to simulate this. So Yavana will go around at certain times of the year and ripen all of the fruits and make the flowers bloom to kind of simulate the feeling of that that first beautiful spring day after a long winter where you're like, oh my gosh, I can leave the house and I don't even have to put on a coat. This is great. <laughs> the the world is anew again. I have a new perspective on life. This feast in particular is special because they are celebrating. Um, there had been that that nasty little business that, that Feanor did and Melkor and sowing all of these lies among the Noldor. And that led to the darkening um, a little bit, the shadowing of the trees of Valinor. They weren't as bright. And then Melkor left and they were brightened. The, the light came back essentially and there was no more shadow. So they're all kind of celebrating a little bit extra because there had been this period of unrest, so to speak, where um, actually, is that the name of the previous chapter? I can't remember. Anyway. It was the Silmarils and the unrest of the Noldor. The unrest of the Noldor. Yeah, there we go. So yeah, there was this period of unrest <laughs> amongst everyone. So they're celebrating that that's over. Everything is better now. Also of note is that Feanor has been invited um, and just Feanor, Manwe just invited Feanor and Finway decided to stay uh, where they had set up their own, you know, home in their exile because as long as he could not be, as long as he could not sit on the throne and be the official king of the Noldor, he did not feel it was right to go and party with them and be with them unless he could be there as their official leader. I think it's also, it's so interesting that this happens because when I read, it's, so it says, it's just, it's talking about the party and everything's great. Yay. It's everything's happy. They're singing and, and everything. Um, it says one thing only marred the design of Manwe. Feanor came indeed. For him alone, Manwe had commanded to come, but Finwe came not. And so when I read that, I was like, oh, that's dramatic. We're going to get some more drama. But Feanor appears and he is not like dressed up fancy. He's not wearing any jewelry. He doesn't have the Silmarils with him. So unlike Feanor. And he goes over to Fingolfin and shakes his hand and they kind of make peace and they say, Fingolfin says, half brother in blood, full brother in heart will I be. Thou shalt lead and I will follow. May no new grief divide us. I hear thee, said Feanor, so be it. And then a little note from our narrator, but they did not know the meaning that their words would bear. Mm -hmm. So something's going to happen there. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Feanor is, he is a sulky child in this chapter, isn't he? Um, he is annoyed at the world and that's why he comes without the Silmarils, because I'm not going to bring the Silmarils and let you see them. No, they will stay all locked up because they're mine. So there, I mean, you can almost see him having a toddler a temper tantrum at this point. Um, he, he denies the Valar the sight of the Silmarils because he can. Um, and it's just, it's a sulky thing to do. And even when Phil, Fingolfin approaches him, it's Fingolfin that really holds out the hand of friendship and uh, says all the words of, 
friendship and um, brotherhood and forgiveness. Feanor's response to that is, yeah, I hear you. <laughs> That's it. You know, it, he's not really meeting Fingolfin halfway. Um, I've often thought that certain sections of the Silmarillion should actually have a subtitle, and that subtitle should just be Feanor, no. <laughs> um, because he just seems to mess up so many things and then make decisions that have such terrible repercussions. Uh, Feanor, no, just no, just stop it right now. But he doesn't. He keeps going and everything that he keeps going and doing just gets increasingly bad um, because he is, in fact, he is a spoiled child. That's how I read Feanor. He's just, he's yeah. a very spoiled boy. Yeah, totally. Um, it's, it's great that you say that like he's coming in sulking and like having a little temper tantrum because that totally changed my view on this. I was viewing it as like he was being respectful where he wasn't barging in and being dramatic like he usually does, that he was very downplayed and he seemed to be somber and kind of accepting like what happened. But you are totally right that he is coming in and is like, I know this is supposed to be a fun place, but I'm not going to have any fun. Like, I came here and that's all that was asked of me. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to celebrate. I'm not going to party. I'm barely going to speak to my brother who like we all who I almost killed that one time. (laughs) Like (laughs) just one time, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's totally true that he's. Oh, yes, exactly. Oh, my God. I'm just going to say, I think it's in the line. Manwe had commanded to come. Feanor's not just invited. He's told he has to be yes. there. Uh, and I don't think he likes that either. So I think that's part of it. Yes. Oh, my God. And, like, I think we've all had those moments as a kid where, like, there's something, I don't know, a family party or, or something that you just don't want to do. And your parents are like, well, you're going. Like, you have to. <laughs> um this reminds me, We, were, my family was just revisiting the story that we were at some family party and my older brother, let's see, he must have been, I don't know, 12 at the time. And he was always very like grumpy and like nev- like all of our family pictures from when we were from when he was like eight until he was probably 18. He is not smiling in any of them, essentially. And there was some family party we were at and there was a magician or like an entertainer inside doing like fun tricks and juggling and stuff like that. And I guess my brother thought he was too cool. And uh, even though that like the adult, like all of the adults were also in there and like enjoying it and having fun. And um, he refused to come inside and he sat in the car the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) It's Feanor. Yeah. (laughs) That's Feanor. (laughs) So, um, if any of my, oh, actually, I think my, that's so funny. I just remembered, I think my sister-in-law's, some of their family listens to this podcast and my brother's (laughs) wife's family, his in-laws. So if y'all are listening, there's that fun story. (laughs) And Um, now you get to call him Feanor for real. Yeah. (laughs) 
everyone is having a good time. Everything seems to be going well, especially given the fact that Feanor's there and no one's like pulled a sword on anyone's throat yet. So like every, you know, it's going about as well as can be expected. <laughs> um, then, unfortunately, darkness starts moving up and they don't quite see it happening kind of until it's too late. Then the unlight of Ungoliant rose up even to the roots of the trees. And Melkor sprang upon the mound, and with his black spear, he smote each tree to its core, wounded them. Deep, wait, wait, wounded then, deep, hang on, I can't read. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, that's not my fault. There's a little printing error on the M of them, and so it looks like then, okay, anyway, wounded them deep and their sap poured forth as it were their blood and was spilled upon the ground. But on and again, great Ungoliant moment here. Ungoliant sucked it up and going then from tree to tree, she set her black beak to their wounds till they were drained. And the poison of death, death with a capital D, that was in her went into their tissues and withered them root branch and leaf and they died and um she kind of like grows in power so she belched forth black vapors as she drank and swelled to a shape so vast and hideous that melkor was afraid Mm-hmm. Yeah, so much for her having a master so much for melkor being her overlord Melkor is one of the greatest of the Valar, and he is afraid of Ungoliant. And I think it's um, it's really fantastic to see how this character, um, who's come out of goodness knows where, can suck life and light into her, and as a result, become even more unlight and more vast. And so... In depriving, um, in depriving Valinor of the light of the two trees, she's not only casting darkness, but she's actually creating a sense of unlight where there's a lack of life of any kind in that area. And it's no wonder that Melkor is afraid, because if this is what she can do, what else could she do and where will she stop? Because he's already, uh, he's the one who said to her that she will have Whatever she lusts after, he has promised her that she can feast as much as she needs to or wants to. What is he going to have to offer her now? Yeah. Because Ungolian is not like you or me at a buffet, right? You go along, you party <laughs> play, you eat what's there, and you're full, so you're kind of done, right? The more Ungolian consumes, the more she wants. So the more she feeds the hungrier she gets. This is not a hunger that can be sated by more. She just gets hungrier and hungrier. So I think Melkor is very much underestimated on Goliant. Yes. And flip. I'll, I'll flip back to when they are first talking and he's like recruiting her. It says, lightly he made this vow as he ever did and he laughed in his heart. Thus did the great thief set his lore for the lesser. So mm-hmm. I love that he's kind of like, yeah, I'll give you whatever you want. And internally, he's like, Psh, whatever, like, not going to worry about that. And then now he's like, oh, what have <laughs> I done? <laughs> I should not get, remind me not to get on her bad side. <laughs> it's too late. Yes, the trees of Valinor have been eaten 
and withered and drained of life and spewed back out into darkness. Um, And so it says the light failed, but the darkness that followed was more than loss of light. And that hour was made a darkness that seemed not lack, but a thing with being of its own. For it was indeed made by malice out of light, and it had power to pierce the eye and to enter heart and mind and strangle the very will. Mm, mm. So in other words, this is not just uh, an ordinary darkness like you get at nighttime. Um, This is the kind of blackness that is not just I can't see, but also perhaps I can't feel, I can't cope, I can't Mm -hmm. do Uh, It's a blackness that enters the self and the heart um, and that has that kind of effect on any living being around it. Um, And that's why Tolkien gives darkness here a capital D. Mm -hmm. It has it. Well, if darkness can have a life of its own, this darkness does. Um, It has a presence. Certainly it has a purpose which is to cast this sense of darkness on everything. So not just deprive the living of light, but to deprive it of all that light brings. So joy and life and everything else that comes with it. This darkness takes all of that. Um, And I think that that's almost unimaginable, isn't it? That kind of darkness where it's not just, oh, the lights are out, but all joy is gone, all sense of self is gone, all the things that make life good are gone, because this darkness as it moves, draws all of that into it and consumes it. It reminds me of what must afflicted uh, Faramir and Eowyn after the Battle of Pelennor Fields when they're in the Houses of Healing and Aragorn has to, to bring them back and that's this feels very similar to kind of what they describe and then I think in a different chapter that like they're still healing from that it's not something that it's just like okay we're better that it's like it's deep in their souls mm-hmm. mm. yeah yes. yeah yeah I mean, it says it has the power to pierce the eye so in other words it affects everything that you see everything you perceive is affected by this to enter heart and mind so anything that you think about anything that you feel all of that is being affected and to strangle the very will. Uh, think about what it's like when um, sense of self is removed or when all joy is removed. Um, people, for example, who have depression. Um, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Often describe the sense of being unable to do anything because they just they can't even put a foot out of bed. You know, you just don't want to move. You don't want to do anything. And even that sense of wanting isn't even there. It's just kind of a blankness. Um, and I think there's, there's some sense of that in here in that it takes away the the will to do anything. You just yeah. nothing. Yeah. And of course, being a Harry Potter fan, this reminds me also of the Dementors and um, J.K.R., I hate saying her name because she's such a terrible person, of course, reminder to everyone out there. But um, she has said that the Dementors were a representation of depression and just sucking out the happiness of of the air of your surroundings. And so all of that, yeah, going hand in hand. And um, I don't know if she I mean, growing up in the UK, she had to have read The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings at some point. And so... She who must not be named definitely owes massive, 
massive debt to Tolkien. Yes. I mean, I'm sorry, but Horcruxes, that's Tolkien. That's the ring. Uh, that's all of those things. Yes. yes. I mean, the, the debt is enormous. Um, yeah. Not that it is really. I think, I mean, part. honestly, every, I think every fantasy and, and sci-fi authors too have a lot to owe to Tolkien. Yes, but most of them will at least acknowledge it. Yeah. (laughs) Everyone is up on the mountain at this party looking down and every the lights are just going out around them they can hear the Teleri who are down they didn't come to the party they're like "Mm, we're good on our island um y'all have fun up there though um and they had previously been singing but now it's uh it says like the cold cries of gulls and so they're crying and screaming and Manwe is looking out and he, it says his eyes alone pierced through the night until they saw a darkness beyond dark, which they could not penetrate. In that moment, he knows that, okay, this is Melkor's doing. Hey, at least they found Melkor, right? They'd be yeah, looking. he's like, hey, uh, he's over there. He's yeah. over there. I think I found him. <laughs> And it says the pursuit was begun, but it's not much of a pursuit. Um, so Orme is out and he's trying to run around and find them. Um, but he it says, um, but so soon as any came up with the cloud of Ungoliant, the riders, the Valar were blinded and dismayed and they were scattered. Um, so Orme and his riders are riding. Ar- they don't know where they're going. They don't know what's happening and Tolkas, my boy, poor boy, is. it says, Tolkas was as one caught in a black net at night, and he stood powerless and beat the air in vain. So he's just punching the air. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Poor boy. Be- yeah, because this darkness, which has a presence of its own, is so all-encompassing that it can prevent even the Valar from doing what they want to do and certainly the servants of the Valar and and beings like Tolkas from who are powerful beings in their own right from being able to move forward to do what they want they, they can't actually get through this darkness uh, and you, you've got to kind of visualize this darkness as having a thick presence around mm-hmm. you um suffocating uh, and um, draining you of life and purpose. And when it can stop even Tolkas, your boy Tolkas, uh, from uh, pursuing Melkor, then this is a, a darkness of huge presence. Yes. It says, but when the darkness had passed, it was too late. Melkor had gone whither he would and his vengeance was achieved. And that is how the chapter ends. And it's like, oh, the the bad guy won mm-hmm. oh yeah 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 and i'd love to be able to say that oh but don't worry because at the start of the next chapter we get it no no yeah the uh, next chapter says uh, the next chapter is the flight of the noldor i believe yes yeah so that's not good yeah things just continue to get worse from here <laughs> Yeah, anybody who's starting the Silmarillion thinking, oh, this is going to be a jolly read with a happy ending. I've got news for you. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, like, it's hard, I think, to imagine that any of this is going to have a happy ending when you know that, like, Sauron is going to be 
out there somewhere growing in power, you know, that like whatever happy endings are going to happen in the Silmarillion are only going to be, you know, for so long because eventually Sauron happens, you know, and we know how that ends. Right. Yes. What I think some people miss is that, you know, when we've read the Lord of the Rings or watched the Lord of the Rings films or whichever, and we understand the enormity of the power of Sauron, you then have to realise that he is a lesser being than Melkor. And the fact that the elves, for example, of the Silmarillion um, are faced with Melkor as their foe, uh, just kind of getting to grips with, with that and how you counter an enemy of that level of power, um, especially when you know when you've know the, you know the story of the Lord of the Rings and you know just how powerful Sauron is. But the fact that he is a lesser being than Melkor should give you pause, actually, because that just it highlights the the huge power that Melkor can wield. And yet in this chapter, he is afraid of Ungoliant. Yes. Oh, I love that. So I wonder, um, that got me thinking. Let me go back in my notes. Yeah, so um, in the Valaquinta, it mentions that Varda is one of the only ones that Melkor is afraid of. So I'm wondering, how, and Varda, of course, being, you know, the, the Valar of light and stars. And so I'm wonder. I'm like, I would love to see Ungoliant and Varda go hand in hand. And I'm pre- actually, let me go back. I think it mentions in this chapter to Varda's reaction. Um, yeah, it says Varda looked down from Taniquatil and beheld the shadow soaring up in sudden towers of gloom. Uh, so it just shows that she's okay. Seen- that's just it. Yeah. So that that yeah, it doesn't exactly say like what her reaction is. She's just watching it happen. Yeah, but of course, what is another name for Varda? What what do the elves call her? Elbereth. What happens in Shelob's lair? Yes, that's right. Fight off Shelob. He has they the call on yeah, and calls out the name of Elbereth and Elbereth. That name is something that can repel Shelob. And I think the fact that, you know, Varda Elbereth is um, the the Valar of of light, um, I think that only that kind of light can counter this kind of darkness in any way. The power of Valar, uh, of the Valar, you know, at this moment, it's uh, Varda herself, Elbereth, that has um, the power to really counter this kind of darkness. Yeah, it's, that's all true. Yeah. And like, I... I have a feeling we're not going to see just because in a previous episode, my guests and I kind of talked about what a shame it is that a lot of these powerful female characters in the Silmarillion are kind of like put in the background. So it would be great to see Varda coming forth and doing something. So hopefully, maybe we'll see more of that in in future chapters. Maybe that's how they get out of this mess is Varda does something. But um, given that we don't really have too much focus on the the female characters i i don't think that will happen but i'm gonna hold out hope that maybe we will see varda get in there and do something with her her beautiful light magic i'm not gonna hand out any spoilers great (laughs) 
Well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, where can listeners find you on the internet? And is there anything you want to share? If there's any, I mean, you already shared a lot about what you're working on, but if there's like a specific project or something you have that's coming up. Uh, well, I am on Twitter as at Arnel Parmadil. Um, I can be found on the website for Signum University uh, and I can be found at a lot of different conferences doing lots of different uh, papers. Um, if anybody's interested in seeing any of the papers, uh, I know that at least a couple of mine are on videos in the um, the YouTube channel for the Tolkien Society. Excellent. And yes, listeners, that'll all be linked in the episode description. If you want to dive more into the the scholarly side and learn more, I mean, and that's what the Silmarillion really is, is for those people who are just so into Tolkien that they're like, I need to know more. So if as we're reading the Silmarillion, I'm not quite ready to dive in and learn more. But if you're ready to, to take that next step, go check out all of those sources um, with Sigmund University and uh, and listen to Sarah's lectures and seminars. That's what I'm talking about as a proud member of WBNE. If you want to learn more about the network, you can go to WBNE.org where you will find all of our shows like Perspective C. The cover is by Vaishan Brandon. You can support him on Instagram at Vaishan Designs. You can get merch for That's What I'm Talking About by going to tpublic.com slash user slash pod. You can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at TolkienAboutPod. I also am terrible at plugging the Facebook group, but there is a Facebook group as well. So click that link in the episode description. You can follow me on Twitter at MCWhatsApp and Instagram at MCTurnDownForWhat. If you want to support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash TolkienAboutPod to become a patron of any tier of your choosing. When you do, you will receive a postcard as a thank you. And depending on your tier, you will receive additional perks such as joining the WBNE Discord server. It's a wonderful place to be. You can also sign up to become a sponsor of the podcast like Oiver. Oiver, thank you so much for becoming a patron and supporting the podcast. Again, I hope I'm not butchering your name. And if I am, please forgive me. In case you haven't heard the rest of these episodes from the Silmarillion, I am terrible at saying names. Now, if you want to go the extra mile and really show your love for the podcast, you can rate and review. You can rate on Spotify now. That is a recent feature. Or you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. This review first said, I'm so happy I stumbled on this podcast on Instagram. I've been listening every day. And then they came back to update it, which is insane, and say update. Just wanted to say this is one of my most listened to podcasts. Mary Clay is a wonderful host and her guests are fantastic. They are fantastic, aren't they? I've learned so much and have an even deeper appreciation for Tolkien. Well, thank you so much for those kind words and thank you for coming back to update them as you continued your journey with the podcast. So yes, if you want to go above and beyond and say your own kind words, please make sure to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Yeah. So uh, again, thank you for coming on. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Just sometimes the Silmarillion can feel like it's going to chew you up and spit you out because it is not a lovely linear uh, narrative. Persevere, it's worth it. Um, And if you find the Silmarillion difficult, then try uh, reading... um, 
one, one of the uh, stories that's been really fleshed out, like the children of Hurin, because that is a linear narrative and that could really get you into it. That's a wonderful, yeah, that's a wonderful piece of advice, listeners, if you're listening and you're not reading along. Because I have had a lot of people be like, I'm listening, but I've been meaning to pick up the book and read. So maybe try that instead. Yeah. And then come back to the Silmarillion when you're ready. Yeah. All right. And that's what I'm talking about.